With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. What are the 25 key attributes one should have for optimal performance? Is it that simple that it's just 25? I mean, when I went through the list of attributes and discussed it with Rich Devini, who, uh, is an ex-Navy SEAL. He's a success in many different areas of life. And he wrote this book, What Are the 25 Attributes He's Seen as Key to Success? And he includes the neuroscience and neurobiology behind all of this as well. It was very fascinating to me. A lot of these attributes I did not have and need to work on them. And he also describes how to work on them to improve your attributes and what's the difference between attributes and skills and habits and so on. And some of the experiences he's gone through which led him to this. So without further ado, here's The Attributes by Rich Devini. Rich Devini, ex-Navy SEAL. or for, wait, Are you ever an ex-Navy SEAL or once a SEAL, always a SEAL? So it's a very good question to or right off the bat, right? Typically, if you want to be formal about it, a former... So I spent 20 years, just under 21 years, and retired, right? So when you retire from the military, you can kind of officially say that you're a retired military officer or a retired Navy SEAL. If you don't spend 20 years then you, and you get out, then maybe you're a former. Um, there, are some, there are some people who would, who would say, once a SEAL, always a SEAL. I, I tend not to say that. And, and the reason is just it's my, it's my thought, my opinion, that um, I don't want to dishonor the guys who are in the fight right now. I, I did the job, and when I was in there, I was grateful to do it. I could not do the job right now. Um, it's one of those jobs you definitely age out of. And the guys who are out there doing the hard work, they're the Navy SEALs. So I'm, I'm a former Navy SEAL and proud to be a former Navy SEAL. So you wrote this book that just came out, The Attributes. You say in the subtitle, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. So what do you mean that they're hidden drivers? And what's the difference between attributes and skills and habits? Yeah, uh, so I, this is something I, I kind of had to discover when I was running a, a the training for a specialized command. We, had a, we were having trouble articulating why guys were making it through and not making it through. More specifically, why guys weren't making it through, because we had some very, uh, very capable and competent uh, candidates, guys who had been experienced SEALs for quite, uh, quite a few years. And so, so they had all the requisite skills. They could do, they could shoot, they could do, they could skydive, they could do all the things we were asking them to do from a skills point of view. But yet the, some of the training we were putting them through, they couldn't necessarily make it through. And and we had to do better than, hey, you just didn't cut it. And so I had to really go back to kind of our basics. And if you look at basic SEAL training, which is BUDS, basic, uh, basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training, um, that's a six month long course. And during that course around week five, you have hell week and you do just grueling. It's five days of running around with boats on your heads, PTing with 300 pound telephone poles, freezing in the surf zone. You only get a couple hours sleep. 
And uh, that's when you get the most attrition um, is during Hell Week. And as I thought about this, I said to myself, you know, I, I've been on and a part of hundreds of combat missions over the years, and never on one did I ever carry a telephone pole or a boat on my head. And so ultimately, I wasn't doing those things in the SEAL training course to train to be a Navy SEAL. What was happening is they were assessing to see if we had the attributes that would allow us to do the job. And so the difference is, you know, skills are not inherent to our nature. We learn them. We're not born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball or shoot a gun. We, we learn those things. We can sit down. We can be taught those things by another. Um, they direct our behavior in known situations and known environments, right? Here's how to throw a ball. Here's how to ride a bike. Here's how to shoot a gun. And then they, because they're so visible, um, they're very easy to assess, measure, and and test. And this is exactly why when we typically pick teams, whether it's business or military or otherwise, oftentimes we get seduced by skills alone. The problem with skills is that skills alone don't tell us how people are going to show up and challenge stress and uncertainty because in challenge and stress and uncertainty in unknown environments, a lot of times you can't apply a known skill. And this is where attributes come in. So you could have all the skills necessary to make it through this training, but if you don't have, for instance, perseverance amidst difficulties, you might not make it even if you have all the skills. Yeah, and a perfect example is we we, we would often get uh, athletes who'd show up at training and they were division one athletes from college or were like rock star athletes in high school. I mean, swimmers, you know, uh, football players, whatever. And some of those guys would quit right away. So if you think about it, I mean, a swimmer, you, know, you have all the skills to be able to swim, right? But it's not about that. It's really about when you, and in, in SEAL training, they take you down to zero or sub-zero, really. Because, they, I mean, when you're freezing in the surf zone, nothing about whether or not you can swim or, or lift 300 pounds matters. Um, it's all, are you going to persevere? Are you going to get through? And when you're running for hours and hours and hours with a with a 300-pound boat on your head or a, or a telephone pole and haven't slept in three days, none of those skills of being able to swim or run or lift 300 pound matter. Right? It's all about, can you persevere? And so that was the point. Uh, the point is, can you get a group of people who in the worst scenarios and the worst environments can still persevere? Um, and so this is an attribute. So perseverance is an attribute and attributes, interestingly, are inherent to our nature. We're, we're actually born with attributes. We're, we're all born with levels of patience and and perseverance and adaptability. And we can see those things in small children. Um, we certainly develop them over time, uh, but they're, but we but they're kind of part of our nature. Oh, let, let me ask about that because how much is uh, and this is an age old argument, but how much is nature versus nurture? So perseverance, for instance, you're saying to some extent I'm born somewhere on that perseverance spectrum, mm -hmm. and how much is then affected by parenting, my neighborhood, my friends, my teachers? A lot, and I think the key about attributes is they actually are developed by our environment, but the the levels to which we're kind of naturally set dictate the difficulty we have developing it, right? So, so for example, if, if a child is naturally impatient, that child may grow up in environments that test and develop his or her patience, but it's going to be hard for that kid. They'll develop patience, certainly, but it'll be hard versus the kid who's born naturally patient. Um, in those same environments, it'll be easier to develop patience because they're already naturally pre-inclined to patients. So we certainly can develop it the develop attributes and, and environment matters. And we can actually plug ourselves into environments deliberately to develop attributes, um, which is actually how you develop attributes. If, you, if you're low on an attribute, the way you develop it is you plug yourself into an environment that allows you to develop that. Um, so I would say that, uh, just to take an example, for guys who chose to and found their way to SEAL training and then eventually made it through, all of us were predisposed 
with with levels of these attributes that actually helped us in SEAL training. And SEAL training and then the job of being a SEAL simply hyper-developed those attributes. That's kind of how it works. So, okay, so let's say the difference between habits and attributes. I guess habits are related to skills. So you wake up early every day, you make your bed every day, this is a habit. To what extent does this overlap with attributes? Yeah, I mean, ha- habits, habits, I think, are, are the result of, I mean, habits are actions, and those actions and behaviors are a result of both skills and attributes, certainly. I would say that the only, I say the big difference with habits is that habits are typically based and built off of routine and designing a routine, which involves certainty, okay? It's, it's very difficult to apply habits to an unknown, uncertain environment. When you're in challenge, stress, and uncertainty, it's, and you're trying to figure out the environment, it's very hard to slap a habit on there. Habits, you know, habits typically need a, a boundary of, uh, of, of certainty around them. So, uh, so I would certainly say habits and developing habits involves attributes, but attributes, I'm, I'm really, I, I've always been fascinated with kind of the elemental behavior of human beings. How are we kind of at our most raw and in our, at our most pure? And, and challenge, uncertainty, and stress uh, typically show us at our most raw and pure. And this is really when attributes show up the most visibly and viscerally, which is exactly why I was able to kind of look at it so so deeply because SEAL training, regardless of its basic training or the or the training I had I was running at the time, is di- designed around throwing guys into challenge, uncertainty, and stress. And so it was, it was a perfect laboratory inside of which we could see this stuff. You know, uh, we'll get to the actual specific 25 attributes in a second, but I'm curious... When so you served in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, where was a situation, kind of a life or death situation, where were it not for the fact that you had certain attributes that may be rare or you have them to a very high level, you might not have survived or other people might not have survived and, and so on? Well, it didn't have to be life or death. There's an old uh, adage, a uh, uh, military adage that says, uh, no. Uh, no plan ever survives first contact with the enemy, right? I mean, so so you are, um, especially in the special operator field, and it could be SEALs, it could be Green Berets, it could be Rangers, whatever, um, you are designed by process of your, your basic training and success, assessment and selection and what you do every day to be what I call masters of uncertainty. So we became, we are ultimately your people who are very good at dropping into environments that are uncertain and figuring it out. So um, so every mission we did, whether it was life or death or not, it never went exactly the way we planned it, which meant we were we were automatically tuned in and dialed in to adapt, uh, for example. So adaptability is a huge one, by the way. Um, missions always, you know, especially if you look at Afghanistan, the, the, the terrain in Afghanistan is pretty uh, gnarly. I mean, it's mountainous, it's high level, it's cold. Um, and so, and so just grit and, you know, all the grit attributes, perseverance and adaptability and courage and all that stuff, you know, apply to just the terrain alone, just the environment. And so I feel like the skills came to play when you're in the business of special operations, the skills came to play when you're actually like in the moment of the of the mission. Like now it's time to kick down the door or whatever. That's when the skills come to play. But but everything surrounding that, everything about planning there and getting there and adjusting and making sure you get to where you need to be um, is about attributes and really uh, and really leaning on those things uh, to to be able to adapt and adjust because it's always going to change. Every never yeah, Murphy. We always said Murphy's always part of the mission, right? So uh, because because something always happens and you just have to you plan the best you can in terms of okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, have some I'm gonna have some uh, secondary tertiary 
plans just in case this or this happens. Uh, but other than that, I'm going to make sure we're going to make sure we just figure it out on the on the fly, and that's where attributes come in. So, so you have a good story in the book uh, about Mike Tyson, and in particular, uh, his fight with Tyrell Biggs. And Biggs was bigger, possibly stronger. He had a plan going in to the fight where he was going to keep Tyson at a distance, and then you know, and, and on and on. And of course, just as your quote, and you you quote Tyson saying, you know, everybody's got a plan until they're punched in the face. Uh, Tyrell gets punched in the face, and all the plans go away. And he ends up losing the fight despite having perhaps better skills. He didn't quite have the attribute of adaptability. He didn't adapt his plans once he was starting to get hurt. And I, I, I wonder about adaptability because I've been in situations where I'm, I'm very disciplined, very cautious. Um, you know, being an entrepreneur, I have to be risk averse while balancing the risks I take. But then when sometimes when you're hit particularly hard, not once or twice, but like five times in a row and you're just for an entrepreneur, maybe you're broke or maybe the business fails or maybe you lose a big client. And sometimes you get depressed. These are the hardest times to, when you absolutely need the discipline is the hardest time to actually have discipline. And so I'm wondering, how do you keep certain positive attributes if everything seems to be going wrong and you just don't understand what's happening? You're, you're actually depressed or burnt out or whatever. Yeah. Well, the good news is the attributes are there regardless, right? So just your just your um, your success in history as an entrepreneur shows that you actually are adaptable. Now, adaptability certainly adaptability might not feel good or be fun, <laughs> okay? But the ability to understand that the environment around you has changed, and you have had really very little control over that, and to to survive, you must change as well. Now, that's really that's really the essence of adaptability because. Ultimately, it's about being able to recognize that we can't control everything. And so when the external environment changes, we have to change with it. Otherwise, we become the, and I talk about in the book, the dinosaur, not the frog. And so we all have adaptability. In terms of our disposition during that event, that starts to lean on other attributes, right? Optimi or, you know, Self-efficacy, which, in which includes optimism, it leans on that. Resilience, because again, resilience is about being able to get knocked down and knocked into the dirt, and then and then find your way back to your baseline. So, can you effectively reflect and recover so that you're back to baseline? So, resilience is involved, and so this is actually why I was was very deliberate about binning these attributes into chunks, right? So, the grit, for example, includes courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resilience. All four of those things, because grit overall is all four of those things combined. Like when you're talking about, you know, you're on the entrepreneur pathway and you get knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, it's not just perseverance that's going to get you through. It's, it's, it's the courage to keep moving, even though you're afraid because you might be broke. Um, it's the perseverance to change or, you know, proactively try different things. It's the ability to adapt based on the environment you're seeing because things are coming at you. And then it's, a, it's the also ability to proactively be resilient uh, because you have to understand that you have to come back and um, and get back to baseline. Otherwise, you'll entropy and uh, and stay down in that ditch. But uh, but yeah, so I think we can look at our and and the great news is that human beings are designed to do this. I mean, we we have evolved because and succeeded and be, and gone from you know cave dwellers to space explorers because we are inherently designed to do all four of these things. We're, we're just gritty, you know, by by our nature. Some, of course, we know some people are more gritty than others. Some people have more of these attributes than others. Uh, but the good news is you can work on them. It just takes deliberacy and self-direction. So for example, so 
when we're developing an attribute, for example, you can't learn or develop an attribute the same way you can learn or develop a skill. If you are not adaptable, for example, I can't sit down and teach you a class on how to be more adaptable. It doesn't work that way. I can teach you a skill. I can teach you a class on how to type, but I can't teach you a class on how to be more adaptable. To be more adaptable, you have to make a decision to self-direct and then to throw yourself into environments where you're forced to use that attribute and develop it. You sort of want to find a safe environment to practice something that you're going to experience in difficult environments. So let's say I'm practicing hitting a baseball and at first the pitcher's just throwing fastballs and I finally learned to start hitting them, but then the pitcher starts throwing curveballs and I have to be adaptable. This is a safe environment. My brain will suddenly say, oh, he's throwing something different. I've got to be adaptable now and figure out a new plan. But when and I'm just really getting to, to the heart of the matter. When we need these attributes the most is when it feels like life or death. Like you, you mentioned, um, Dr. Andrew Huberman in the book quite a bit. He's been on the podcast a bunch of times. And so I'm very familiar with a lot of this stuff, a lot of his work on neurochemicals. When you're down and out, whether it's in a fight or a business or, you know, a family personal situation, you feel like you're being kicked out of the tribe in some primal sense. So cortisol right. starts to fire off and that is going to disrupt completely the way you're making decisions. It's almost like what you're saying is the ability to have positive attributes and make use of them in difficult times means you almost have to override the neurochemical situation and hormonal situation that's happening inside of you. Mm -hmm. That yeah. seems particularly difficult unless you've really practiced these attributes. And again, we haven't gotten over really the attributes yet or how to get them, but yeah. you know, just taking adaptability and, and, and confidence and optimism as, as examples, you know, you know, AKA grit. I'm, I'm worried about those times when the cortisol is telling me I'm about to get kicked out of the tribe yeah. and I don't have quite the mindset to figure out what attributes to use. Yeah. So, so a couple of things there and I'll, and, and I'll just, I'll hit one first and I'll dive into this, uh, into, into kind of the specifics of what you're asking. First of all, so when you're developing attributes, discomfort doesn't have to mean not safe, right? <laughs> so, so really, it, so discomfort is really the key to developing an attribute. You have to put yourself in uncomfortable situations to develop the attribute, not unsafe situations. But let's take it all the way to the unsafe part, because you're right. What we're talking about is fear. Um, and this, is, this gets into kind of the first and foremost attribute of grit, and that's courage. Um, fear is an interesting thing because fear starts to pull us into different directions, sometimes uncontrollably, depending on how much we're afraid. So yes, uh, Andrew and I are good friends. We've, been, we've met each other uh, probably four years ago now, and we've been deconstructing and talking about peak performance and optimal performance and, and courage and fear. And ultimately, one of the things that we really kind of thought about and discovered both in, in the laboratory where he's been working and certainly in my experience is that fear is a combination of a couple things. Fear is the combination of an anxiety plus uncertainty, okay? If you have one but not the other, you're not necessarily tipping into fear. So, for example, you can be anxious but not uncertain. I have a presentation to give on Monday, and I'm nervous about it. I'm anxious, but I, I'm going to give it, and I, it's, it's going to be fine, right? No one's going to hurt me, whatever. Uh, boss is, is, is a pretty good dude so or, or lady, so I'm, I'm going to be okay, right? You could be anxious but not uncertain. That means you, there's probably not fear there. You're just anxious. You can be uncertain, but not anxious, right? This is every kid on Christmas Eve, <laughs> okay? Uh, where you don't know what's coming, but you're actually excited about it, okay? It's when you combine the two that fear starts to show up, okay? Anx anxiety plus uncertainty. So like, for instance, 
anxiety about going broke if you don't get the big deal and you don't know yet if you've got the big deal or not. That's exactly right. Or to put it in a, in a context everybody can understand, COVID-19. <laughs> okay, when we got hit with COVID-19 and quarantine, all of us felt a little bit of fear seeping in because we were all anxious about the disease and getting the disease and uncertain as to how it showed up and details about it, how contagious it was, all that stuff. We had a lot of both in there. So a lot of people felt a lot of fear throughout 2020. You know, and it's really true because I always think the stock market is not a barometer of the economy, but a barometer, at least for the short term, a barometer of uncertainty that people would rather be certain the economy is going to be bad because then they know, oh, we've always bounced out of bad economies right. like this before. So the market might actually go up when, when the economy is bad. But when it's uncertain and you don't know how bad it's going to get, we didn't know how bad the pandemic was. We didn't know how bad the economic lockdowns would be. We didn't know if there was going to be a curfew or quarantines and there was new rules every day. So there was a lot of uncertainty. And that's when the market fell by a third after the lockdowns were imposed and the stimulus package passed, the market shot up to all time highs. Not that the economy was great. In fact, the economy is still much worse than it was in 2019, but we had certainty. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. It's a, it's a great example, um, kind of a visual, actual example of how this works. And so, uh, and so when we have both, we have fear. When fear starts to tip into our, our, uh, our into our, um, uh, into our heads, into our brains, we start to kind of move towards that fight flight response. And this is where uh, there's a decision point. So if we if we're in full autonomic kind of response, right, and we don't and we're not in control, sometimes we fight or flight without thinking. But oftentimes it takes a lot to get us there. So there's really only two things that can happen: that's fight or flight. There's that freeze in the middle that we talk about. But like like a guy like Huberman will say, um, freeze is really more of an oscillation between the two choices: uh, either either retreat from the fear or move step into the fear, which is fight. If you do either one of those, if you retreat from the fear, a, a specific circuit in your brain gets switched, okay, and you retreat. And sometimes retreating is the right thing to do, by the way. I mean, no, no, it's not a good idea in any case to fight a bear, right? So, so sometimes retreat is necessary. The fight response is, is also a choice. Now, fight obviously doesn't mean put up your dukes. It just means step into the fear, step into what's making you afraid. Um, when you choose to do that, a specific switch clicks in your brain, and that's the courage switch, okay? That is courage. When you step into fear, you're flipping that courage switch. The other thing that's happening is you're getting a dopamine reward. Um, we are designed as humans to be encouraged to step into our fear because we had to go find food to eat. We had to go find shelter that in the unknown environments. And so we were encouraged to, to get a reward when we chose and decided to do that. Can, can you give me an example from, you know, again, from your, it doesn't even have to be from your military experiences, but some exp example where you step into the fear, just so we yeah. concretely can visualize yeah, it. Yeah, so, so for example, I, I, I've never liked heights, <laughs> okay? So skydiving was always tough for me, but I did it. Um, but one of the things I would do is that on every SEAL base, there's an obstacle course, and there's several different obstacles you can do. But one of those obstacles that's on almost every course is a 65-foot cargo net, okay? And it basically is two big telephone poles with a net that goes all the way to the top. The way you go over this obstacle is you climb to the top of this thing, you flip a leg over, and you climb down, okay? Well, what I would do is I would, I would every time I went for a run, I would plan my run to pass this cargo net. And I wouldn't, I, sometimes I'd do the whole obstacle course, but, but I'd always try to pass this cargo net, and I'd climb up the cargo net. And I just, as soon as I got to the top, I just sit at the top, right? Because I knew, because I could feel the fear. I just, I just let the fear in, and then I just do that for a few minutes, feel it, and then go down to the bottom. Every time I did that, I felt awesome after doing that. That was me getting the dopamine reward. Okay, so, so, and that was helping me basically work through 
that fear. Um, now, interestingly enough, if you do that enough, um, you get used to it. You inoculate yourself to that, right? So after a while of doing that, I'd get to the top and I actually didn't feel fear anymore. As soon as that fear goes away, that courage switch is no longer needed and you don't get the dopamine reward, right? So so I would once I was used to this, I would climb up, sit there. It's like, okay, this is good. It wouldn't feel as good anymore because I wasn't getting that dopamine reward. So, so courage, for courage to exist, there first needs to be fear. Uh, but the good news is when we decide to step into our fear, we can actually in effect, get rewarded. And it's it doesn't it's not limited to you accomplish the full goal. Just every step you take, you're getting a dopamine reward. That's a great example, but i'm I'm still thinking like, let's say someone's listening to this, they're they're driving to work or they're they're walking their dogs in the morning and then they're gonna do their job from home or whatever later. How does the the average person who's not going to climb up sixty five feet to deal with their fear of heights, how can they practice? sort of leaning into fear and, and understanding what that means. Yeah. Well, the first thing someone has to do is understand what makes them afraid, okay? Because it's subjective for all of us, all right? For some people, roller coasters make us afraid. For others, being underwater. For others, you know, sitting in traffic. So that's the first all thing. All right. I, I'll be really honest. I'm afraid of people thinking I'm stupid. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, so you've already leaned into this already because you've done so, such kind of prolific work in your books and your podcast um, that you've leaned into this. So the idea, it's an interesting one. So the, the, so the first thing you'd probably have to do is ask yourself some questions is, okay, what are some ways that I could put myself into a situation where I feel like or fear someone might think I'm stupid. I mean, every time you do a podcast might be that for you, right? So you may you may be leaning into it right now because you're like, hey, I want to do it. And, and you're, you're pushed to step into that and do a great podcast and have people say, hey, that was a great podcast. And you're really helping me with some great information. The subjectivity of fear and the subjectivity of process really comes down to someone asking themselves proper questions. Um, I can't necessarily direct you in terms of exactly what to do, but I can direct you in saying, hey, first ask yourself, what are those things that make you afraid or what are the things you're afraid of? Then ask yourself, okay, what are ways that I can put myself into some of those situations at, at you know, maybe starting mild levels of discomfort? Doesn't certainly doesn't have to be unsafe, but mild levels of discomfort so I can move through it feel that reward that I'm moving through it and then do it again. Okay. I would imagine, um, in your case, I mean, the fear of looking, uh, or someone thinking you're stupid or looking stupid, does that, does that still bubble up frequently or has your ability to kind of do these podcasts and get great content? Has that helped at least, um, help you feel like every time you do it and do it well, you feel good about the fact that you've pushed through it? I think in, it, it depends area by area. But like when you meet new people and let's say you're having a conversation and you have nothing to say, the first thing that might come to mind is, oh my God, they think I'm an idiot or boring or whatever. And it hits me again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, these, are, so, these are very normal, like everyday yeah, situations yeah. where it's like, I have, I, I'm just trying to figure out what's a, what's a way to lean into this fear and practice so that I can you know, be okay in everyday situations. And, you know, one way is through writing where you just write, like, this is what I'm afraid of. And you post it on Facebook. And now you're just telling everyone, this is the ways in which I'm stupid. And that's <laughs> yeah, one, yeah. Well, that's one way to do it. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like, you know, an everyday thing like this, how can I, or how can anyone practice leaning into it? Well, let's take an everyday thing that you, that you should mention. That's starting up a conversation with someone because that's something that I have a diff, I have difficulty with as well. And um, and the answer for both of us is to start up more conversations with people. Um, I, you know, the, the, the good news 
and the bad the good news and the bad news. The good news is that the answer is simple. The bad news is is do more of what makes you afraid. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so how would you do that? Like, what in the supermarket would you just start talking to someone about the weather or? That might be it. Yeah, that might be it. I know for me, um, I got into a profession leaving the military where I, because I didn't like being in front of people speaking. And so as I left the military, I said to myself, I was talking to a leadership group and they said, hey, we'd love for you to come work with us. And the job is, you know, go give keynote speeches once in a while about the leadership stuff. And then sometimes you'll actually teach classes for people for a couple of days. And I said to myself, man, uh, that does not sound fun at all, but I'm going to do it, <laughs> you know? And so I did that. And I, I, I did that for a couple of years. Um, and every time I did it, I was nervous. And every time I engaged in it, I felt better and I felt the reward of doing it. And I, and I learned and it didn't always go well, you know, right? So, so there were mistakes made here and there. There were times I was like, oh, shoot, that, that didn't go the same way. Um, but I leaned into it uh, more and more. And subsequently, I also in that process, so say I was at a client and I was teaching a two-day class, I had to, because unless I wanted to look like an introvert who didn't like anybody, I had to then go and extend myself to people and have conversations because there's dinner events and things like that. I could have very well sat in a corner and had a beer and that would have been perfectly okay for me. <laughs> but to lean into that discomfort, I said, no, no, I need to extend myself. I need to go and, and start a conversation and ask people how they are. And so, yes, it, it involves looking at situations and finding opportunity to start that conversation see how it goes, uh, step into that and practice that. I mean, supermarket may be a good place. I mean, again, we're in a weird situation with COVID, so supermarket may not be the best place right now, but there are always places. Uh, there are always there is time, places you can, you can ask yourself, how can I lean into this? But the other question is also, just because you're afraid of something doesn't necessarily mean you need to get better at it, right? It's, it's up to you. I mean, if conversing with people is an important one, but, but if you're afraid of heights, for example, you know, you're just someone, hey, I'm just living my life every day and I, there's no reason for me to go skydiving. There's no reason for me to go budging jumping. I don't need to conquer this fear of heights. I don't, you don't need to, right? If you, if you don't like being underwater, you don't need to do that. It's really up to the person as to which ones they want to conquer. What if, and I know I'm pouncing on this one quite a bit, but I think it's a really important one. And it's also related to the adaptability attribute. And I know there's 25 attributes in total. And we're focusing on, on these few, but what if you're afraid to ask your boss for a raise? So someone listening to this is thinking of they deserve a raise, but they're just terrified of asking the boss for a raise. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a specific situation. How do you practice it? Well, that's a great one. I think the first question we'd have to ask ourselves is what are, why am I afraid of asking my boss for a raise? Okay. Because a lot of times those things that we think exist do not. So why am I afraid to ask my boss for a raise? What is it? I mean, is the boss uh, ill-tempered? Is the boss mercurial? Uh, is the, does the, I'm afraid the boss is going to tell me no. I, you know, so that would be the first question. And then once you answer those, you can probably strip away some of the fiction there um, and focus on the actual things you're afraid of. But then it's, I think it's going to be more about someone asking themselves, okay, why do I deserve a raise? What are those things that I can actually effectively and logically say to my boss to cogently explain and really convincingly explain why I deserve a raise? Those are really good questions to ask oneself because you can also help inoculate a little bit of fear by preparing properly. Again, fear is often based on assumptions we're making and predictions we're making about an environment that may or may not be true. Your and my trepidation going up to a stranger and conversing is probably coming from some assumptions and trepidation that that person is immediately not going to like us, is immediately going to feel like we're crazy, is immediately going to feel like 
what the heck is this person talking to me? We might be 100% wrong. That person might just be looking to talk to someone. <laughs> Probably more likely you than me, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. I mean, and then and there are some predictions and assumptions that we make that are actually entirely true. If someone's afraid of heights, it's because they are afraid of falling off something and falling to the ground and, and, <laughs> and breaking something or splatting, right? I mean, gravity is a real thing. You know, gravity is why we're afraid of heights, right? But, but a lot of other fears, to be honest with you, are based upon and filled and wrapped in a lot of our own predictions and assumptions that may not be correct. So, so it, it's incumbent on us when we're thinking about something that we're afraid of to do some diligence in stripping some of that away. And one of the ways we can do that is we can ask people who are good at what those things uh, we're afraid of doing are and ask them, what the re what, hey, tell me the real story. So, so in other words, I can ask a skydiver who has 50,000 skydives, hey, uh, tell me why I shouldn't be afraid of, you know, throwing myself out of an airplane at, at 20,000 feet, right? And that skydiver is going to tell me, well, I've done 20,000 skydives and I'm still here. <laughs> you know, that's one reason, you know, so, the, so, so parachuting is pretty reliable, right? Or the person who starts up a conversation, well, typically when I start up a conversation, nine times out of 10, I have a lovely time and I learned something I didn't, didn't know about, about someone else and, and I, I create a, a bond, right? So leaning on those people who are actually good at those things is also a strategy. You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll take it one step further using your book. So you discuss in, in the book uh, these things called mirror neurons where by observing something, you might, uh, your brain sometimes thinks, uh, and again, they, they haven't fully proven this with humans, as, as you mentioned in the book, but your brain might think that what you're observing is actually happening to you. Yes. So, so one idea going along the lines, it, it, you just made me think of this when you said, you know, talk to people who have done it, maybe watching YouTube videos of a hundred skydivers might also kind of, or, or, or watching videos of someone really confident or watching videos of someone asking their boss for a raise. Sometimes all it takes is just watching someone who's very confident. You'll temporarily get confident. 100% correct. We, we, you know, the, we can model. Uh, so my wife is a perfect example for me and, and starting conversations. My wife is, is extremely empathetic and she's very outgoing and she's very curious naturally. And we've been married for 20 years. Ever since we, I've known her, it's so easy for her to walk up to a perfect stranger and start a conversation. I mean, it's not, it's, it's like breathing for her. And so I watch her do this. And so often um, there's a connection and a bond that's created and she learns something really neat about that person. And so I've learned, it's like, wait a second, this is not that bad. In fact, when I started doing it just as part of my job, I really leaned on a lot of stuff I learned just by watching her and observing her and saying, this is not as bad as I think it is, you know? And so, yeah, if you're, if you want to skydive, yeah, go watch a bunch of skydive. Just don't get sucked into the skydive malfunction, you know, uh, videos, right? Um, because there's probably more of those than videos of skydives going well, even though statistically skydives go so, you know, go, go well all the time, you know? So, um, so yeah, you're right. I, you know, the mirror neurons allow us, again, mirror neurons designs, and yeah, it, we're not sure exactly the specifics of it in humans at least, but they're designed for us to um, have empathy um, and that empathy helps us learn lessons sometimes that we need to learn without actually experiencing an event. If we see someone um, touch a fire and get burned, um, we're going to empathize in a way that allows us to say, in our brains to say, okay, I'm not going to touch that fire because I just saw that person get burned and it hurt that person. So I don't want to get hurt like that person did. So I'm going to learn that. So, so, that, that'll, it, we're, so we're designed to learn lessons that way just from observation.
let's talk about the full 25 attributes and you divide them into various buckets, but which ones would you say have been the most important for your success? And I know all of them, as you say, are drivers of peak performance, but which one should we be thinking about? It's going to be hard to remember for people to remember 25 of them. Yeah. You already mentioned, you know, some meta attributes like grit being a combination of courage, optimism, what you call self efficacy. And, um, there was one other one in there, but I, I forget. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember which one I mentioned, but, um, so, uh, so yeah, I've been them into five categories. There's the grit attributes, the mental acuity attributes, the drive attributes, leadership attributes, and team ability attributes. And so, uh, I would say for, well, so let's just, let's just try to ubiquitize this and say as, as people coming out of 2020, <laughs> a year that was really kind of a hell year, um, and moving into 2021, which by the way is kicking off well in the season opener already. Yeah, it is. It is. Although we have to, I think we have to all recognize and just take pause and understand because I think we could all say relate to this is, uh, is it's very rare that years switch right on new year's day. Right. I mean, typically January of a new year feels a lot like December and November did of the previous year. Right. So, yeah. so I think I, we're, I, we're still okay. I'm still optimistic. It's going to be, nothing happens like overnight. So I think it's a slow roll, but, um, uh, but we, so going into 2021, as we hopefully have a sense of optimism and hope, which we should, um, you know, the first, first it's about, okay, what are those things that, that maybe I didn't accomplish in 2020 that I want to accomplish in 2021? All right. That's going to take the grid attributes first, right? Courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resiliency, because you're going to have to march through, move through challenge, stress, and, and uncertainty going towards any goal that you want. That's the nature of goals. You're going to have to do that. It's going to take the drive attributes, or at least some of them, because drive is about, so while, while grit is about kind of pu pushing through that immediate challenge and stress and uncertainty, drive is about that long-term goal, right? So, so I, I want to be, I want to write a book this year, or I want to, I want to, you know, uh, learn, uh, learn the guitar. I want to, I want to have this business, uh, result, these numbers or get the promotion. Okay. That's a long-term goal. The drive attributes are help us understand the long-term objective and move towards it. Okay. So I think the grit and drive, so things like self-efficacy and discipline are really important. Um, and those are, those are really big ones. If I were to think about some of the biggest ones in the drive, it'd be those two self-efficacy, the combination of confidence, initiative and optimism. Okay. And it's sort of like a belief in yourself. It's a belief in yourself, but actualized, right? So, and, and it has to be more so confidence. So it's interesting because as I was looking at this, I realized, okay, confidence, initiative, and optimism, those are actually all attributes. The problem I was finding with each of them is they were, they were inert on their own. So in other words, if all you have is confidence, it's not enough to do. I mean, confidence doesn't, doesn't get things done. Um, you need some initiative, right? But if you just have initiative on its own, then you're it's like frenetic energy. There's no purpose behind it, right? Um, and then optimism on its own is inert as well because, I mean, you and I could plant a garden and say, you know, there are no weeds and we we shall have bounty and be very optimistic. But if we don't do anything, uh, it's not going to, It's we're going to be disappointed come harvest time. So you have to combine those to actually have self-efficacy. So so let, let me ask this, though, uh, along these lines. So you mentioned some goals like, okay, this year I want to learn guitar and, and now it's going to take drive, which is this combination of attributes to move towards that goal. But what about people who've just been in the system, so to speak, for the past 20 years, they've, they've had the same job day in, day out, and they don't really, they've kind of lost that muscle to, to think in terms of moving towards goals. How can they, how can they start to develop these muscles, develop these attributes? Attributes are almost like muscles you have to develop. 
Yeah, they they certainly it certainly helps to continue to develop them, especially if you're not predisposed to to them. But but it's likely if if someone's been kind of in in the same place for for 20 years and they haven't really moved on the way they want to, then it's likely that they have um, not been able to develop it. So. Um, so you know, one of the first things I always recommend with goals, and it sounds very, uh, uh, very kind of boring because we've heard it so many times, is to write it down. <laughs> you know, right? So, so because I think writing down goals is an extremely important, not only physical act but neurological act. Um, and the reason, kind of, I think this, and it's kind of been proven in my in my experience, um, is that we. We have 11 million bits of information coming into our systems every second, and that's through all of our five senses. And our brain does a massive amount of deselection, you know, because we don't. There's a lot of things that our brain says, okay, you don't need to notice that right now, right? So, for example, we're not. None of us are noticing the bottoms of our uh, of our feet right now, right? Until I mentioned it, and now we're noticing it, right? But but we don't. We, we our brain deselects that. Our, it's because our forebrain really only processes about 2,500 to 3,000 bits per second. So out of 11 million bits, our forebrain is really only designed to process about 2,500 or 3,000. So that's the, amount of, that's the amount of information our conscious mind now is taking in that's not getting deselected. Um, we, can, we can hack into noticing things just by deciding to and kind of putting into our forebrain. This happens to us without us thinking about it like when we buy a new car. Okay. When we buy a new car, suddenly we see the car everywhere. Okay. Right. Like, what the heck? Did everybody buy this car? No, no. That car was always around. It just it just now is in your forebrain. And it, you basically told your forebrain, notice this car every time you see it. Okay. When we when we decide on and especially write down a goal, what we're doing is we're actually we're actually telling our forebrain, hey, anything about this goal, I want you to notice. I want I want to put into my conscious field so I notice it. Um, this is kind of, you know, you know I've, I've described this as kind of one of the explanations for the law of attraction, you know, and again, there's a lot of, you know, we're not going to, we don't need to get into metaphysics here. Um, the, there's one of the scientific reasons why that works um, is because you're, you're deliberately putting something into your forebrain and saying, notice things around this. So I think so, someone, so, so what does that do? So the act of writing it down, does that trigger a cognitive bias somehow? Or like, what is it, what is it, what is it doing? Like, I understand when you buy a car, it's, there's a cognitive bias because you're you're spending money, so you're you're telling and my, your brain knows that for years you've thought money was important. Oh, and here he's making this his biggest purchase of the year. It's this car, so the brain knows to file that notice this car now because it must be important. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, again, I don't want to get too far into the neurology of it. I know that yes, the cognitive bias exists, um, and you're basically the forebrain. You're telling the forebrain to notice it. We could we could do that just naturally though. You know, the, the buying a car is something that you're 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 slapping on a lot of other focus cues into, and you just mentioned some of them, right? Uh, you're spending a lot of money. Um, it's the newness of the car. It's a car you've always wanted. There's a lot of deep focus layers that you're lapping onto that that make your forebrain say, "Ooh, okay, I'm going to notice this." But we could do this. We could say, "Hey, I want to notice the color blue," you know. And and sure enough, if you if you put that in your forebrain, it, say if you're you're start your drive to work, it's like I'm just going to notice. I'm going to start noticing the color blue. You're going to start noticing blue everywhere, okay? Because because we've just chosen out of the 11 million bits to focus on that, um, or or at least not focus on, at least notice it. Uh, and so so again, we'd have to ask. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll ask Hubert when I talk to him again. Um, the what's actually happening neurologically, I'm not sure, but you certainly are highlighting something to then pull it out of that 11 million bits and plant it into that. 2,500 to 3,000 bits in your in your forebrain so that it's coming to your attention. 
I know that that's happening and I know that works because I've used that for years. So I think that would be step number one. Okay, so writing it down and you know, let's say you want to quit your job and, and learn to be a great chef. Maybe not in that order because yeah. you can't just quit your job, but something like this becomes yeah. your goal. So I think I think then then it would be it behoove someone to walk through the the drive attributes and and ask themselves okay which ones do and start with the first one and say okay do I have this so self efficacy for example okay well how is my self efficacy uh, in in my in my goal to be a master chef okay what is my confidence level okay uh, well I'm pretty confident uh, or I need to work on it. say I'm pretty confident okay what's my initiative you know how how does that look am I do I have initiative do I have enough uh, purpose behind this goal so that I know that I can take the first step, okay? Um, and then what's my optimism? Now, I always say optimism needs to be tempered by realism, okay? But not too much so that it bleeds over into pessimism. There's <laughs> a lot to say. Um, but, um, but optimism is, hey, I can do this, and I know that as I move down this path, um, even if I don't know the exact path, I'll figure it out as I go. And in doing so, the realism part is I know there's a couple challenges that I can already foresee, and I'll just plan ahead for those. And then I'll just be I'll just be optimistic that the ones I don't see I will I will affect. Okay, so the combination of that is self-efficacy. So I would say ones should measure their level of self-efficacy, and then they have to say, okay, what's my discipline level? Discipline is interesting because I had to separate it from self-discipline. Discipline overall is different than self-discipline. By discipline overall, I mean the the ability to to choose and pick a goal long term that you then march towards. And the external environment has a say. Okay, so self-discipline is is about managing oneself along a goal or an objective that the external environment has no say in. Okay, so for example, if I want to lose weight or if I want to, you know, run a a, a six-minute mile, it's going to take self-discipline for me to do that. The external world has no say in whether or not I, I accomplish that goal. It's all on me. Okay, so if I want to lose weight, yeah, I could I could be at a buffet. But it's my. It's going to be on me whether or not I choose the healthy foods. Okay, so the external world has no say in that, in the expression or the achievement of that goal. That's what self-discipline is. Discipline is different. Discipline involves a goal where the external world actually has a say. Okay, this is when you start talking about being a master chef, writing a successful book, or becoming Navy SEAL, or you, you name it. Okay, the external world has a say in that, which means you're going to have to be adaptable and understand that as the external world hits you and inflicts its say on that, you have to be able to move through that. And as you move through that, not get crushed by the lows and, and the challenges, but also not get seduced by the highs. Because during any, during any progress towards any goals, there are going to be lows where you have to work through, but there's also going to be successes and highs. Ooh, I, that was a great, you know, I'm moving towards this promotion. That was a great quarter. Well, I'm not going to get seduced by that great quarter. I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep my eye on the ball, really. So someone has to actually understand their, their discipline when it comes to these goals that they want to achieve, that the external world has a say in. You know, I, I think it's very interesting about not getting excited by the highs, just like you don't get depressed by the lows. Because like I used to day trade, for instance, and on a great day where I made a lot of money, I would be very excited. And of course, it would be the case that when I lost a lot of money, I would be devastatingly depressed because yeah. you sort of... And this is related to the uh, the book Mindset by Carol Dweck, Fixed yeah. Mindset versus Growth Mindset. I think when you get excited by the highs, it's almost like a fixed mindset. Like mm -hmm. you think to yourself, oh my gosh, I'm a great trader. I'm going to make money like this every day. And then that becomes fixed as opposed yeah. to like, 
well, I had a combination of skill and a little bit of luck today. And, you know, fortunately things went my way and now I need to uh, observe the risks for tomorrow, which is maybe more of a growth mindset. And I, and I think being too attracted to the highs is, is too related to a, a fixed mindset. I find. I totally agree. I, you know, one of my, one of my commanding officers had a, what he called the two minute rule and he, and, um, and it kind of a hack into, into helping out this. And it was something his grandfather taught him. And he used to tell us, he said, Hey, my grandfather used to tell us the two minute rule. And the two minute rule goes like this. When something bad happens, okay, you have about, you have two minutes to wallow and kick the dirt and feel sorry for yourself. Okay. Once that two minutes is up, you need to put it aside and move forward. Okay. Same thing when something good happens. <laughs> when something great happens, you have two minutes to rest on your laurels, celebrate, pat yourself on the back, and then you put that aside and you move forward. And I think it's a stroke of genius because what it does is it recognizes the need to both mourn and celebrate because those are both real needs, especially if you want to be effectively resilient. Okay, We need to understand, hey, when something happens that's bad, take some time and just understand and mourn it. That's okay. Okay. Process through those emotions rather than tamp it down and forget that they, that didn't happen. So, but only take two minutes <laughs> and when something great happens, celebrate it, right? Say, Hey, that's great. I'm, I'm good job. You know, I did great. Whatever you want to do, have that beer. But after two minutes, understand, Hey, okay, I'm back to baseline and I'm moving forward. And I think that's a way that someone can actually help actualize this, this idea. So, okay. So, so, now when they've got, let's say they've got discipline, they've got self-discipline, they've got, um, you know, drive and grit, but still they're thinking like, well, what, what should my goals be? I'm, I don't even know. Like I've been doing, I've been in the system for 20 years. I've been, you know, doing what society told me to do. And I thought this was the correct thing. And now I'm, I'm bored and unhappy and, and whatever else, like what, what attributes, what attributes can they start developing then? Well, I think it's a, so. I think I think the attributes come after the answers. Um, the if someone is really in that position, they don't they don't know. They have to. They're going to have to sit down and kind of lean on their neurology. And and the way I so so it's a really it's a really very simple technique that I talk about. That's called you know ask better questions. <laughs> um, here's the here's the idea. Um, we are we are question answering machines, okay? Our brains are set up to, an to ask questions about our environment all the time. That's how we make sense of the world. Oftentimes it's happening unconsciously. We're, we're taking things in, it's bouncing off our hippocampus, uh, it's comparing to things we've seen before, and it's asking questions, that's what it's doing. We can take charge of this, we can ask a question, and it, it's, it's kind of put a question in our forebrain, our conscious brain, and our brains will begin to answer it. So I, do, I usually do an exercise when I, one of the classes I teach, and I say to the, to the people, I say, okay, uh, answer this question. How could you double your income in the next six months? I'm gonna, I say, I'm going to give you 30 seconds, and I want you to write down anything that pops into your head. Okay? Um, and I give them 30 seconds, and they do that. And I said, it doesn't matter how ridiculous, just write it down. Um, and they typically end up with a list of between five and seven things, okay? Um, well, the, the, the lesson is that it doesn't really matter what the answers are. What matters is that anytime we, we lodge a question into our forebrain, our brain begins to answer it, okay? The problem is most of us are guilty of doing this the wrong direction, okay? We ask ourselves the wrong questions. We say, why am I so bad at this? Why does this always happen to me? Why is everybody out to get me? Okay, as soon as you ask yourself that question, your brain will begin to come up with the answers. Uh, so, some of the answers might be entirely ridiculous, <laughs> by the way. Um, just like some of the answers that, are, that, that you write down after you know, uh, the question of how do you double your income, 
in the next six months. But other answers are going to be pretty good. And if you spend time on it, you're going to actually come up with some pretty accurate answers. The idea is change the quality of your questions. Okay, If you change the quality of your questions, and high-performing teams and high-performing humans do this all the time as they ask better questions. Um, how can I grow from this? What, what have I learned? Um, in the case you're talking about, what do I want to accomplish? Where do I see myself in two years? Where do I see myself in five years? What are some things that I, I have always wanted to do that I haven't yet? Okay. If you sit down and you spend some time, and I, I and I'm I'm, you know, again, I'm really big on sitting down with a pen and paper and writing this stuff down. It doesn't have to be it. You don't have to do that. I mean, you could also do it maybe when you're, I mean, some a lot of times when I ask myself questions, I'm I'm on a jog. Like I for me, jogging is really good thinking time. Um, so sometimes I'll do this just while I'm on a jog. I'll just ask myself questions and answer them. But if you spend some time doing this and then and don't let yourself off the hook, you're gonna come up with some answers that you've probably already thought of before. And as soon as it starts getting hard, in other words, it feels like you have no, have no answers left, ask yourself, okay, what else? <laughs> Don't let yourself off the hook and keep on asking. And I think, so, so the person or the people you're talking about who feel like they um, have been in the same situation for many, many years and they don't know what they want, you and I can't tell them. Uh, they're going to have to ask themselves some questions. The good news is they have everything they need to do it because they have the their brain functions the same way ours does. Um, and if they if they spend some time and they ask better questions, uh, they will come up with some of these goals. And as soon as you have those goals, that's when you can start to use the attributes to actualize them. Talk about some of the mental acuity attributes because once they have a goal, let's say they want to be a master chef, they're going to have to learnability is going to kick in mm -hmm. as well and, and yeah. other mental acuity attributes. Yeah, mental acuity was one that I was I was really quite fascinated in because it really spoke to a lot of the training we were doing because the guys we were looking at had a lot of the requisite attributes already. Um, I think we we're mostly finding, at least in the specific specialized training we had, was there was some deficiencies in the mental acuity ones. And I say, I say deficiencies, they were still high, but they weren't high enough. Um, Mental acuity really speaks to how our brain processes the world and takes in information, processes it, and uses it. So situation awareness is the first one. And that is that speaks to that 11 million bits of information that's coming in. And how much, how much of that 11 million bits are we allowing into our forebrain and then actually recognizing? Um, some of us are, are, are higher in situation awareness than others. And that means we're, in a word, just more vigilant. We notice more things about, that, about our environment than other people. Um, again, this can be practiced, um, but for example, I've always been uh, pretty uh, pretty good at situation awareness. Um, my 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 profession for twenty years as a Navy SEAL made me pretty hyper vigilant, right? So I can so I walk. I'm the guy who walks around the city streets and I notice things. Right? I notice the dark alleys. I notice the 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 hands in pockets. I notice the people. I notice the street signs. Right? I just I'm and part of my training is that okay. Uh, it doesn't matter where you fall on the scale. It just you know so some some are less uh, some have less some have more. Um, so that's situation awareness. Once we have that information in, um, especially when we're when we have a uh, an objective we need to accomplish, um, that's when compartmentalization uh, comes in. Okay, so so for perhaps the objective, if I'm if I'm walking uh, down the city streets, my objective is to find the is to get to the, get a cup of coffee, right? Um, I'm taking in a bunch of information, and what compartmentalization uh, is doing is is the next step is basically it's assessing. It's prioritizing, then it's focusing. So it's assessing information. Okay, I see, I see the street signs. I see cars. I see um, some some restaurants. I see some uh, some jewelry shops. I'm going to focus on just restaurants, right? I'm going to prioritize. Um, 
restaurants, and I'm going to focus on whatever signs have restaurants, okay? Uh, and then I'm going to focus, and that's focus. So I, I assess, I prioritize, and I focus. That's compartmentalization. So one's ability to effectively do that with the information that's coming in speaks to their levels of compartmentalization. Then it's task switching. So that's how, how effectively am I hopping between contexts. So switching from, say, driving a car to walking in a parking lot or switching from walking on the street to getting into the Starbucks, that's task switching. And so that's, that's different. That, or that, that's, actually, that's actually what's happening versus multitasking. We don't multitask. Uh, I think we all know this. It's been proven. We, we can't focus consciously on more than just you know, one thing. Uh, now, people say, well, I do it all the time. I, I drive and I listen to a podcast. Well, that's true, but that's because you've relegated the act of driving to your unconscious, right? You're doing that without thinking about it. So that's how we can get away with it feels like multitasking. Um, but as soon as we have to think about it, right? If I'm listening to your podcast and I'm driving my car and suddenly someone you know cuts in front of me and I have to hit my brakes and swerve, okay? It's very likely, in, in fact, it's, it's guaranteed I'm gonna have to rewind uh, the last 30 seconds of the podcast because I just missed it. Because <laughs> I, I stopped paying attention to your podcast and I had to start paying attention to swerving my car, right? So so task switching is really, what we really do is we switch between tasks. Those people who can more effectively and efficiently switch between tasks and not feel interrupted and um, and and not feel kind of out of sorts uh, are, have, are higher on the task switching. Because so, some people, it's very hard for them to come out of the thing that they're focused on and switch into a new task. For others, it's pretty easy. And then finally, there's learnability. Learnability speaks to our ability to kind of process all of this and then absorb it and then um, learn from all that. And so this speaks to like someone who's high on learnability is someone who naturally picks up things pretty fast, okay? Uh, we all know these people. You know, you, they, they, they try something once and then they're great at it, <laughs> okay? I am not one of these people. Learnability is one, one of the things I'm actually low on or lower on um, so how does that, so how did I have to adjust? Well, I knew that when I was learning stuff, even when I was in the SEALs and I was in training, I'd have to, you know, repeat things in my head. I'd have to kind of walk through, I'd have to take some extra time, uh, because it took me a little bit more time to just absorb it and kind of learn it. Whereas other guys, they just hear it once and they got it right. So it's really about understanding where we are on these scales so that we can effectively apply the lessons that we're learning. If we're learning how to be a master chef or, or play the guitar or any one of those things. You talk about learning techniques in the book and, you know, ideas for the START acronym you talk about later in the book, which is a, a methodology for fast learning. But how can one, for instance, develop more learnability if, they're, if they feel they're low on learnability? So the way I do it is I try to put myself into environments where I have to learn things. Again, do more of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty easy, right? But, um, but do more of it and test myself. And I like experimenting with things that really test this, right? So, so here's an example. I, you know, I drive a stick shift car almost every day. I have a, a, a CJ7 that I love. I drive it all the time. When I took the family to Scotland for vacation, I uh, rented a car and I asked for a, a stick shift, you know, rental, because I knew I'd be driving on the opposite side of the road and the opposite side of the car, which means everything is reversed, <laughs> you know. Um, and it was interesting. Did you have to shift with the left hand. Yeah, now I'm shifting with the left hand instead of the right Ugh. hand, um, and uh, and driving on the uh, left side of the road versus the right. So everything's reversed. So my brain is suddenly thrown out of a context I'm very familiar with, and I do unconsciously. And now I have to consciously think about what I'm doing. And so I would admit to you the first day of driving was pretty uh, intense, and I was yelling at the kids a lot to be quiet, and my wife was doing 100% of the navigating. Um, but after a while, I got used to it. 
If you are low on learnability, though, it's just it's just it's a matter of recognizing that. And when you're when you're engaging in those things that you want to learn, just recognizing that you just have to repeat it more time. You're going to have to just do a little. It's going to take you a little bit longer. And so understand those things that one that you need to do to absorb it better. When I was in the seals and we were kind of learning how to do room clearances, you know, which is the the kind of the act of going into a a building and clearing out rooms to what to a target. It was a pretty intense learning process. I mean, they were they were throwing a lot at you pretty rapidly. And I remember I had to very deliberately, after a day's worth of training, I went back out and I'd I'd walk the halls and I'd, I'd visualize these moves and I'd visualize these things that they taught us or they they expected us to do, so that I better absorbed them. There were some guys who picked it as soon as they got told they picked it up. Right, good on them. Uh, it wasn't me. So if you are lower, if you find yourself a little bit lower on the learnability, it's just going to take you a little bit more time. And a recognition of that is the first step in in kind of conquering it uh, and, and working through it. And what's the role of creativity in this? Because if you're going to be like, for instance, if you're going to learn to be a master chef, then at some point you have to have your own distinct, you know, style, your, your way of doing things. Well, creativity, I believe, is going to be the result of some of these attributes, right? So, so specifically, probably open-mindedness, um, uh, because what creativity actually is is the ability for our brains to make connections that may not be as obvious as we think they are, right? So the ability to say, link uh, something that I learned in math class to something I'm doing in the, on the battlefield, uh, you know, as a, as a Navy SEAL, right? If I, th th to be able to link those two things, that's where creativity starts to spawn. You say, hey, this is something that wasn't linked before that is now linked based on two different divergent ideas that just popped, that, 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 I, that I learned from other places. So, so again, we'd probably have to ask the neuroscientists what that looks like in the brain in terms of those neural connections. But everything I've learned about creativity comes from loading up your hippocampus with as much experience as possible and as much different things as possible so that you can begin to then relate things that might not be as obviously relatable. And that results in new ideas. But I think I would say, I would maintain that to be creative, you have to, have to, have to have an open mind. I really, I really do because the closed mind is, is way too certain about everything. What's an example you think where you're, you might have a closed mind, like wh what issue, whether it's political or emotional or about sports or about yourself, that are you firmly convinced you are right, even though it's a speculative issue where I, you know, people have many opinions. Wow. Boy, that's a, that's a really great question. I've, I've, I've worked so hard to try to be open-minded. I've never thought about what I am closed-minded about. Um, uh, I could certainly, I, I could certainly say I was more closed-minded as a younger man. And it could be like, again, a, a political, like, like for instance, a lot of people are very certain about either pro-choice or pro-life as an example, or for gun control or against gun control, or, you know, man-made climate change versus no man-made climate change. So those are political things. Another thing might be personal, you know, or whatever, or, or emotional. Like what's something that you're firmly as part of your platform as a human? Oh, yeah. Um, I am, I pretty firmly believe that potential and growth have to happen as a result of one deliberately moving towards 
those things that uh, that they're uncomfortable with. I think discomfort is required. <laughs> Here's the problem, James: is I, I'm also a I'm a skeptic in my own mind. So even when I say that, I ask myself skeptical questions like, why am I wrong about that? I've, I've almost developed a habit. And so it's hard because we also don't want to admit where we might be closed minded. Like I can't think of one for myself right off <laughs> or, yeah. or, or, or if I do think of one, maybe I'm afraid to admit it. Right, right. Well, so it's a great, so, so I'm glad you asked the question because even if, even if I can't answer for you now, it's something I'll ask myself later because I think that's a really good exercise in understanding our, our blind spots. You know, again, we all have them. And if we don't effectively try to find and seek them or, or, or at least look around the corner by, by asking these right questions, then we're, we're at risk of, of coming across as, uh, as closed-minded or being closed-minded. So yeah, I will ask myself that question and I'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah, no, please do. And yeah. I encourage listeners to ask that as well. I mean, I'm trying to think of the answer for myself and I can't really think of things, although obviously there's millions of things. Well, so let's, okay, so let's just, uh, you know, we recently had this thing happen in DC, you know, folks stormed the Capitol. I can say with a lot of certainty and definitiveness that I think what they did was wrong. So perhaps one of my questions I should say is, am I being closed-minded about that? Or, or there, are there different angles that I might be able to discover in that act? So that would be tough for me to do, but that might be an example. Yeah, and it's interesting because regardless of whether you're, you, you voted Democrat or Republican or, or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like You could right. take a view that these are people who broke into the U.S. Capitol. Mm-hmm. So that's treasonous. That's more than just breaking into a target, which is still a serious crime, which deserves jail. But breaking into the U.S. Capitol hasn't really happened since the War of 1812. They invaded and cleared out the the U.S. Capitol. It's high treason. By the letter of the law, these people, all of them should go to jail for life. Like, that's the time for the crime. And so let's say I 100% believe that, which probably at some points yesterday I did, uh, and maybe even still do. Maybe maybe one can reverse it and say, well, under what circumstances can you say, well, no, they were expressing themselves. It wasn't intended to be violent, uh, even though violence resulted, and they shouldn't get a life sentence. I guess. Yeah. What? Yeah. What's their What's their object? So this starts to dive into empathy, which is also a great exercise because I think we we all, as we enter into twenty twenty one, we all need to. Well, it would behoove us all to exercise it a little bit more. Empathy is the same way. I mean, but how can I how can I empathize perhaps with these people and say, can I literally try to feel what they feel? Um, because that's what empathy is. It's not it's not I know how you feel. It's I feel how you feel. So can I do that? That is a really tough thing to do. Even though we're wired for empathy as human beings, it's tough to really try to put yourself into a perspective of another, so that you begin to get a sense of how they feel. This is why, I mean, some, this is why you can really kind of uh, greatly respect some of the best actors out there because the best actors out there, they're not pretending. When you see them on screen, you know, they're not pretending. They're actually feeling what that role feels like. Um, and so they, they could give us probably a good lesson on how to effectively empathize and how to effectively feel how someone else is feeling so that we may empathize. Uh, but part of it would actually be asking the question you're asking. It's just, okay, to empathize, I have to recognize that I'm probably being closed-minded about something here. Um, so I should probably open my mind and, um, and see it. It's, it's largely, so the, 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 I guess the, the difference is the proactive 
openness of the process or the reactiveness of the process. I tend to think of open-mindedness as kind of a, I say passive, uh, as kind of a passive act, right? I'm going to just, I'm going to allow myself to let in a bunch of different experiences and perspectives as much as I can. Perhaps empathy, I think, well, I think empathy probably requires a little bit more proactivity in the process. <laughs> you have to actually say, that, okay. Yeah, me, that's interesting. Yeah. Let me really think about this and put myself in that position. Yeah, it's really interesting, but but it would behoove, I think, all of us to do that a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I never thought of it that way, that open-mindedness. You're at, it's like you're opening a door and letting in different possibilities that normally you wouldn't let in. Like you could let in the fact that maybe this crime might have other outcomes for various reasons, and I need to open my mind up to that possibility. And like you say, it's not necessarily proactive. I don't necessarily have to think further about it, but then to have empathy is sort of a way to explore what those other possibilities might be. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great exercise. I know I've, I've worked, I've tried to work on my empathy, especially since I met my wife, my wife is extraordinarily empathetic and I've learned a lot from her. Um, and I've always tried to, I've been trying to, and continue to try to work on my empathy. And it's always been proactive for me because it's easy to get caught up in the, in the perspective that is me. <laughs> so what, what about like, though, when you're in a situation of war and you know, you go to uh, Afghanistan or Iraq and you're told on every single day of your training that certain people here are the enemy. They're bad guys and they're the enemy. And I don't mean to for it to sound simplistic. Everybody who goes over there is, as you know, certainly braver than me and, and as, as, has been a hero, but what, how do you, how do you experience empathy when you're also supposed to shoot at these people who are also shooting at you? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the answer lies in the in the fact that it's not as simple as that. And those who see it as simply as that are people that hopefully we can deselect from the group because you don't want soldiers out there that don't understand the differences and the nuances of the people that are around you and surround and that you're surrounded by in that type of fight. Because in any of these conflicts, there's going to be bad people and there's going to be civilians. And then and so I think, so I always talked about empathy in terms of the SEAL or the warrior as a dimmer switch, okay? And that is you have to be able to dial it up in certain cases and you have to be able to dial it down in certain cases because in certain cases to have too much is going to be a detriment to your ability to do what you need to do. The best soldiers out there, and there are a lot of them, in fact, most of them are, are, are just uh, remarkable people, okay? We typically hear news stories about those who aren't, okay? But the, those, the, the, most of them are. Um, and the reason is because all of us come to that conflict or those situations with levels of understanding and empathy and know that this is a very human process. And you're going to be dealing with people, and in some cases, people who want to kill you, which means you're probably, you, you know, it's pretty easy to dial down your empathy when someone's shooting at you, by the way. Um, but uh, but then you're surrounded by other people who aren't shooting at you and who need assistance or who feel like your you your your presence there is is an invasion um, and and you have to you have to work through that and you have to do it responsibly and so uh, so I think it's it's a difficult process it's one that that most soldiers handle very well but it's also what makes the job tough you know it's what makes it's what makes the you know sometimes. Uh, it, those are those are the outsets of uh, or the onsets of say PTSD and things like that. If you can't effectively uh, do that, or, or 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 situations have been just so extreme that it's it's just hard to. So so it's a very very complex question. Uh, it's a very complex thing. 
Um, but um, empathy is certainly part of the warrior mind. It has to be. Uh, those who don't have it are toxic. And, and unfortunately, there's, there's been examples of that um, out there. But, uh, but for the most part, you, you, it's, people, people manage it pretty well. So, so Rich, tell me why, obviously, you, you, these attributes were very useful to you in your career, and you've been fascinated by it, and you're also fascinated by the neuroscience of it, hence your discussions uh, with Andrew Huberman, and a lot of that is, is found in this book. The book has, has tons of stories, different stories about the different attributes, and we have a lot of overlap in terms of, like you talk about Dan Coyle's book, The, the Talent Code, one of my one of my favorite books. You talk about grit. You talk about Andrew Huberman. We have a lot of overlap in our in our interests here. Why did you write the book? Yeah, I well, I wrote the book because I'm fascinated with human performance, and I'm fascinated with human performance in, in and also human potential. Right? I am. I you know, human beings. You know, we've we've gone from cave dwellers to space explorers in a relatively short period of time, <laughs> and um, and it's because of our ability to imagine that which does not exist and bring it into existence. And I think um, part of our ability to do that is is the fact that we walk out to our edges and those things that cause us discomfort and fear, and we lean over and we explore, <clears throat> and um, and so 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 the evolution of us is incumbent on our ability to continuously do that. And my thought is the more of us who can do that, um, especially deliberately, the more likely we are to evolve <laughs> positively. You know, um, so, uh, so how do we do that? We do that through human behavior. And most of our real innate behavior comes from these attributes. And so I wanted to really dig into helping people figure out what makes their own engine tick so that as they pursue their goals and improve and do their own thing, they know what their engine looks like. I, you know, I'm a firm believer that you don't, you shouldn't be slapping um, uh, cool devices and things onto an engine that you don't understand. Okay, because if you if you do that, you're probably going to put something on it that blows it up, right? So, so when I see, I, sometimes I get frustrated when I see a lot of these. Um, uh, recommendations or hacks into, hey, do this or do that or try this and you'll be great, you know, uh, and. And it's it's okay. There's nothing wrong with those. But if you don't understand your own internal makeup first, then how are you supposed to know what is going to work for you and what's not going to work for you? Because not not every tip works for everybody. I mean, something that one person says is going to be great for one group of people, but then another group of people are going to try it and say, "Well, that didn't work for me." Well, it's probably because their engine wasn't the same. So, the, for me, these attributes are kind of like figuring out what's under the hood for all of us. And also you give, you know, for people who want to improve different attributes, you give really good advice on how to improve an attribute. We always think about improving skills or developing habits, but you can improve these things that are, even though as innate as they are, you can improve your learnability or your, your drive attributes or, you know, and so on. Yeah, it's better than that. In fact, it, uh, we I would I would maintain that we actually have all of the attributes. Um, it just we're, the difference in each of us is the levels to which we have each, right? So, so I may be on um, adaptability scale. I might be a level out of you know one to ten. I may be a level eight, and someone else might be a level six, you know, or a four. You know, uh, the person who's a four can say, you know what, I'd like to be, I'd like to up my level of adaptability, and they can decide to effectively work and develop that attribute. And so, uh, so there's some tips in the book and I'm also throwing things, throwing some stuff on the website as well, uh, that people can access to, um, also, also take any, any one of the attributes they want to develop and, um, and develop it more for themselves. Uh, 
so so if you want to, you can. But again, the caveat to that is you don't have to. It really depends on what you want to do and what profession you're in, what job, what what's what's your what's your lot in life. You may be in a position in your life where uh, you you don't have to um, work on your. Uh, I don't know, pick one, your empathy, <laughs> you know, I mean, we could talk, maybe I shouldn't pick empathy. You may not have to work on your cunning, <laughs> you know, or your, or your, uh, or your, uh, perseverance or whatever like that. Any one of the, or your task switching, you might not have to, but if you do, if you want to, you can develop any one of these, uh, which is the good news. And, and so, so yeah, I, I, I outlined some, some kind of back of the envelope, uh, techniques in the book and then the website, uh, will have some stuff that people can go deeper if they want to. You, sh- you should do, you should make like a test where, you know, you don't want to make it simple where like, uh, how do you, how easy do you learn things from a scale of zero to 10, picking up, but give like little stories and ask people what they think of them. And from that, you could determine where they rank on various attributes. And then I wonder if there's a way to match attributes to professions. Like if you could kind of show statistically, okay, if someone's, uh, uh, you know, in the military, they have these attributes are, are, best fitted. If someone's yeah. an accountant, these attributes are best fitted. If someone's running a restaurant, these attributes are best fitted. Or if someone's a writer, these are the best attributes. That yeah. would be I mean, interesting kind of like career finder type of type of task. Well, I'm, I'm ahead of you on one of those, because if you go to the website, uh, there's an assessment tool already that we've designed. And you can take an assessment and figure out where you stand on the grit attributes and the mental acuity attributes and the drive. We're still, we're still finalizing the drive attributes, but those three. And what, what we did was we created these tools. Uh, we created questions. We basically pushed out the questions to about a thousand people globally, and we got a bunch of data. And so, if someone takes this assessment, what will what they'll get is they'll get a they'll get a number as to where they fall on courage, perseverance, adaptability, as compared to a thousand other people. Um, now, what I will tell a person once you take that is that's a snapshot. Okay, it's 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 where you fall as compared to a group. So the it's incumbent on you as you take that assessment and get that score to ask yourself some questions about each one and say, okay, um, this assessment is saying that I fall uh, I, as compared to a thousand people, I am about a level six on compartmentalization. Okay, how do, does that make sense to me? Um, can I think back to times where my compartmentalization felt like a level six, or or is it you know? So you have to put some subjectivity to it. So um, so that's that's offered on the website. That's for free. Um, and then we're working on some leadership and team ability assessment tools uh, as well. Hopefully those come a little bit later. Um, in terms of figuring out for figuring out the best attributes for specific teams, um, that's um, unfortunately I can't do on my own because that's a very subjective task. It's a, a subjective task for the team. Um, I could certainly come up with a list of of what attributes make up a Navy SEAL. That's easy because I was a Navy SEAL for 20 years, right? But uh, a team of accountants is going to have to figure that out for the team of accountants. It's going to have to a team of HR people, a team of um, salespeople, a uh, team of artists. Uh, they're they're going to have to within that group within that team figure out what are the what's the list of attributes that is most applicable for that team and that's how they're going to have to do it. Uh, I, I I'll I I outline a little bit of a process in the book for a team or a group to do that for themselves. Um, but it would be um, well it would be both irresponsible and incorrect if I tried to do it for someone else. <laughs> so well, I'm definitely going to take this assessment. You know, I've been on the website and I, for some reason I didn't notice. The, the huge the biggest button on the website which says take the assessment <laughs> there it is <laughs> so right. I have to I have to my situational awareness needs work <laughs> well we'll see what we'll see what your score comes in at <laughs> um but look rich rich Davini this is was a great book the attributes 25 hidden drivers of optimal performance what's the actual publication date 26 January 26 of January
Rich, it was nice to meet you. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate that, James. Thanks for having me. I really, I enjoyed it and I enjoy what you do. So thanks for, thanks for what you do. Thanks. I appreciate that. Thank you. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 